Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyer, the president of Gospel at Ministries. Thank you for listening. We are going through the Sermon on the Mount uh, right now, and we're still at the first of the Beatitudes. We're taking a lot of time on that one because we want to explain and dig into the, the meaning of blessed be. He'll say that nine times. Jesus will. So we want to be able to get that pretty clear. And I think we'll, we have something uh, on our mind, and I, I think you'll appreciate it. All right, so it's time for us to wrap up our examination of the first beatitude, the capstone of the beatitudes, as chapter 5, verse 3. And, and we're going to come up with a translation that helps us understand, I think, really well, the subtlety of what Jesus was saying and the difference it makes to real people, particularly people who feel like or who felt like there's just no hope for them, right? And and maybe that's you. Maybe you've come to this podcast and you just feel like an Audi related to God. You feel like he's disappointed in you. You feel like you haven't lived up to his expectations. And you feel like Christianity, this relationship with him, this love relationship might be for other people who've done better, uh, who are more righteous, who are more pure, whatever it might be, but not you. Oh my goodness, this would be such good news for you. And the key is to come up with an English word that captures makarios or ashray. And typical translation is blessed or blessed be, happy, fortunate, even flourishing. And all of those words capture, they do, they're good, capture some of the feeling of makarios, but I think we can do better. There is another word that I believe captures another subtle aspect of Jesus's meaning. From the Old Testament equivalent, ashray, we understand that at its core, it's an assessment of the state of the individual as seen from others around them. So how do others see this person? Does that make sense? Fortunate comes close, even flourishing, but I'm going to toss out enviable. Enviable picks up the idea that there's something about this person's well-being and state that motivates them to want to do the same thing, right? To receive the same blessing. If it were said that the person is enviable, that implies that others are wanting the same blessing, wanting to be like them. They're seeing that person as having it and they want it, right? There's a movement to the word that goes beyond blessed or happy or even flourishing, even though there's overlap. So I like Enviable from a narrative point of view, Jesus is looking at the Tokoi and spirit who are anything but enviable. No one wants to be them or where they are. They are as unenviable as possible. Matter of fact, in that culture, they would have been considered cursed. So it's a greater statement than even saying fortunate or happy because something has happened to make them now social influencers, enviable. Being with Jesus in a special way unique way, and Jesus being with them somehow in a mysterious, miraculous, uh, life-changing way makes the unenviable enviable. I've looked for another ancient Greek equivalent to the word enviable, and I can't find one that really is spot on. There are ancient Greek words that reflect envy that that would be negative, uh, spoken against, right, a sin, but none that I can find that speak of the positive, influencing aspect of being enviable. And remember, again, using Ashray as our template, there are two ways to gain that state with God where you would reach the status of being envied, right? The Joneses keeping up with the Joneses. First, you have depended upon God enough, 
you've kept and delighted in the Torah enough, you've given enough to the poor, you've been righteous enough, you've been just and fair and hospitable enough. And so makarios, ashrei are you because you fill in the blank enough. And so God rewarded you. Or two, God unilaterally chooses you, forgives your sins, draws you close to him, and or sets up his messianic kingdom over you, and, and you're in that kingdom. And if, if it's the latter, you begin to reflect the righteousness of the king, God, by loving him and loving your neighbor more, because you're in this atmosphere of the messianic king. So, Macarius, are you because God has already unilaterally done this, blah, 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 and you are the recipient beyond what you have earned or are due? And with the people on the hillside, I think we're speaking of the latter. So, enviable are the unenviable. Make sense? So, let's look at the second part of 5.3, the cornerstone of the cornerstone of the gospel, our cornerstone. Makarioi are the tokoi. Enviable are the unenviable, because the kingdom of heaven is, by the way, present tense. This is important when we go to look at the other eight blessed bees, uh, because the kingdom of heaven is right now and is always is, always true, always present, yours. Well, if you recall from an earlier podcast, I said that the phrase kingdom of heaven is an idiom or a circumlocution, which is replacing one phrase with another for a variety of reasons. It's an idiom or circumlocution for God himself, ultimately. It's not a castle with a throne and an army and advisors and wealth that's coming and is near. It's the king himself who's coming. That's the point, is the atmosphere around the king is royal. It's a kingdom because the king's here. So it's the king himself, his son, his spirit. So Jesus is saying, ultimately, because God is yours, because you are God's implied. To an isolated, um, unenviable, shamed bunch, all sinners related to God, all unbelievers related to God, or cursed, right, appeared to be cursed, many pagans or impure, rejected Jews, I think the blind man who had long suspected that God had turned away or was making him suffer due to some sin that he could not see, much less fix, to hear that God is his or hers, theirs, this is shocking. It's, it's just shocking news and hard to believe at first blush or second or third or fourth. It's frankly too good to believe. Um, faith is a miracle, not something by choice. It's huge. It's too much. The one thing that made Israel Israel was not circumcision. I've heard that, and we've taught that in Sunday schools for kids and stuff like that. Uh, the one thing that made Israel Israel wasn't even the Torah. Uh, even though those things are identity markers, to be sure. See, here's the point. They still had those at the time of Jesus and still felt lost. They didn't feel like uh, they were children of God, people of God. They felt abandoned, wondering who they were in the big scheme of things. Where was God? Had God abandoned them? Were they still in exile, spiritually or, or actually? Or they were being occupied by a foreign country, right? There's no sense of the presence of God. Not really. There was a sense of God's religion, the Torah, but not a sense of this loving relationship, this special covenant relationship that God had established with Israel. That was a unique relationship described by the iconic covenant formula mentioned dozens of times in the Old Testament. I am your God and you are my people. I mean, do a search for that. It's all over the place. I am your God and you are my people. That's what made Israel 
Israel with a specific special relationship, intimate relationship, covenant relationship with God. That's the thing that made Israel Israel, the promise of this relationship with God and related his favor. And now Jesus is, this is what I'm suggesting to you, is boldly and importantly saying that these people, Jews, good and bad, quote unquote, Greeks, rich, poor, the unfaithful, the sick, the, uh, I mean, all of these, he's proclaiming that they're gods, just like Abraham was proclaimed to be gods and under his favor. Interesting. And importantly, as importantly, God is theirs. This is a proclamation of a new covenant using terminology related to the old covenant. So you're my people and I'm your God and we are good. You are Ashrei because you are now in this relationship and God's saying, I made it so. Jesus is saying, because of me. You know, why is this good news? I have a friend who's active in ministry. I mean, really well known in his ministry who says that he just wants to do the right thing so that there is at least a slim chance that when he sees Jesus face to face, he maybe, just maybe, might hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. You're my beloved child with whom I'm well pleased. Or at least have a shot at it, he says, and, and, the, and the crowds usually laugh. Well, I got good news for you and my friend. Jesus is proclaiming something wild and wonderful. It's to those who should not expect it, who definitely didn't earn it, uh, sinners, that he's going to say over, you are my beloved children, and I am so pleased with you, not because of your sin or lack of righteousness or even the righteousness that you do have, but Jesus is saying, because of my righteousness and the cross. It's all because of Jesus. Jesus is going to the cross so he can proclaim a people ashray. He can, and those people that he does that to are enviable. Make sense? And this is how we can do it. We have said that no one takes the law more seriously than Jesus. He's a hypernomian. Uh, nothing's bigger than the law, in, in a sense, right, humanly speaking. So how can he seemingly wash it all away in one fell swoop and apply covenant to these people? Is this a new social justice gospel where Jesus is now giving a new standard, a pass for sinners, a pass for Audis, because it just seems like a good and loving thing to do, and that's what Jesus would do? No, absolutely not. This is his plan. He's going to the cross to fully take all of the judgments of the whole Torah seriously. He's going to go to the place of these sinners in their courtroom, in their trial, and be declared guilty of all charges, celestial treason, be condemned and perish to satisfy the justice of the universe. And so he can look at these people now before those tragic events will happen in a short three years' time and say, you sinners, tokoi and spirit, the broken, the helpless, the powerless, uh, you who whose lives have, have treated them unfairly, others have treated you unfairly, you don't have any hope of relief, you don't have any refuge, you're not going to be able to heal yourself, you're going to still be stuck isolated and cursed or think you are. You, you just got no shot at improving where you are. You can't rip off your shame like a Band-Aid. You can't be happy. And, and your ashray is right here in my face, in my eyes, in my smile, in my hug, in my kiss. It's near and available because I'm near and available. It's you who are gods, right? You Take advantage of that. Come, you're in my presence you're, it's you who are God's and he is yours. So enter that rest from a Hebrews 4 perspective. Wow, 
It's crazy. Now, am I saying that they got it when he said it? You know, they started dancing some, maybe, I think, I would like to think. But many, most, I don't think so. And this gets back to Bruner's thoughts. Jesus would have had to unleash an amazing power into the brains of these people, the defensive aspects of their midbrain where where they trigger, where nothing has hurt them more than relationships, and, they're, and they're, they've got this fight-flight-freeze cycle going on with the relationship, particularly related to God. And they've developed these hard-crusted defensives uh, in their brain. And so he's he has to unleash an amazing, redeeming, rescuing power for them to begin to feel his love. By the way, Ephesians 3, we still need power from God through the Holy Spirit in our inner being in order to begin to grasp how wide and high and long and deep is the love of Christ, right? That's And why do we need that? Because our brains fight against it. So I don't think they were able to without that power, and I don't know how that power rolled out, but I'm, I really believe it did. Uh, but some were able to hear, maybe many, maybe most were able to hear something about them now being people of God and under his favor, that they were now part of covenant Israel. So I think their reaction reaction would have been one of shock and fear. And for many, they would have derided it. They would have joked about it, I think. If humanly speaking, churches I've been at, right, unless Jesus's power was ripping through them and then they got it, then they danced, then they smiled, then they laughed, then they followed Jesus, right? Well, we know from Matthew 7, 28, some of the reaction, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. When he came to, by the way, the teacher of the law would have, would have uh, preached with guilt. Here are the things you need to do if you're going to even earn any of God's favor. Jesus didn't teach that way. He extended God's favor and then said, live in it. Chapter 8, verse 1, when he came down from the mountainside, here it is, large crowds followed him. Matthew doesn't say everyone did, but it was extensive. I mean, this is a revival. This is revival language. They became um, they became disciples. Ekpleso, uh, which is the amazed, it's a word talking about to cause to be filled, to cause to be filled with amazement to the point of being overwhelmed. And and Akalutheo, which is a large crowd, followed him, Matthew 8, 1. This is the same word used in Matthew 4 when the disciples were powerfully and effectively called by Jesus to be his disciples. Remember, we went into that in some details. Because of this, when Jesus speaks, he's creating disciples. He's creating belief. He's creating faith. And people want to follow. He's not trying to convince them. He is, but that's not all he's doing. And we said that this calling so that the people would follow him as his disciples, not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Come on, let me look at Peter, right? Remember, we said it was a miracle the size of the parting of the Red Sea. Jesus spoke and said, follow me. And they did. Something happened. There was a new creation. Jesus, the spirit hovered over the chaos and void, Genesis 1, and there was life. Same outpouring of the spirit, and, and same entrance into a foretaste of Ashrei. Not perfect, a little bit. So the messy, tragic, self-focused, desperate, unloved, and unlovable crowd, the unenviables, now wanted to follow him and felt like they could, felt like they it was okay, you know? It's a miracle. You know how what a big deal this was? An unlikely launch meeting with an unlikely messy launch leadership team, and yet they followed. And Jesus was pleased. That's what he came for. 
this crowd was unsure, no doubt, what they heard and what it means. But like the blind man who can now see, even though they can't explain it, they're in. Well, you see why I said along with Bruner that this is the nutshell of it all. There is no one excluded by race or sex or sin or unfortunate lifestyle, what's happened to them, what they've done, whether they've been faithful or not, past, present, or future, poor or rich, successful or not, blind or seeing. Bring your guilt and your shame and your need, your hunger uh, and and your desire for justice, that the unfair things get fixed. I mean, if you've been subjected to racism Man, run to the embrace of Jesus. He, he knows nothing of that. I mean, nothing like that is going to come out of him. Just throw your lot on him. And, and you won't because you've been so beat up in the past by these things. You're going to be hesitant unless the Holy Spirit is setting you free, unless you're being rescued. And run to the one who stands in the middle of your hill, right, wherever that is. And ask that he empower you. Beg him to act to empower you to see, to hear, to know, to believe, to begin to feel loved. God, give me power through the Holy Spirit to make me feel your love. And then, then follow. And by the way, you will begin to want to follow. And if you're getting this for the first time or get it again after a long time, a long hiatus where you've fallen away, welcome back. Let us know, bill at gospel-app.com. It would be so encouraging for us and others uh, that we can share your story with. So this important question, am I saying that Jesus is proclaiming a universal salvation? You know, it doesn't matter who you are and what you do or believe, everyone's in, no hell. You know, I wish that were the case. Um, I do. I, I wish that were the case. But I just can't square that with so much of the Bible. Um now, first, let me say, when we speak of this topic, it should never be just a rationalistic, theological, geeky, cold conversation, because we're speaking of the lives of real people who are no better or no worse than you or me, who will, who may never experience ashray. We should be sad. We should be deeply troubled. This should be offensive in so many ways. And by the way, definitely offensive to speak of it with no emotion. We want those people to experience what, what we're experiencing, and it's tragic that they don't. So now, but having said that, if that is your question still, God bless you, but in so many ways, you're burying the headline. See, why aren't you as equally troubled that Jesus acclaimed this people, the, the people on the hillside that day, to be in a state of blissfulness and enviable relationship with God that had been reserved for the righteous? Read the Old Testament. Those without sin— the repentant, those who were depending upon God, these these folks, I, I would argue, probably weren't. And they certainly weren't doing it perfectly, neither or you or me. Nobody has. And there's no reason to think they were righteous, uh, spiritually speaking, uh, based on Torah. So he's not saying or modeling here that anyone or everyone is saved. Uh, but this is true. In God's arms then and now, you will find only the rescued and now loved Tokoyan spirit. That's all there are. Uh, when heaven's going to be filled with redeemed Tokoyan spirit, to put to put it in modern evangelicalism, heaven will be filled with redeemed sinners, people who shouldn't be there, people who didn't earn it. That's all there is. So the the church looks like that's the people scattered on that hillside. That's that's our DNA. People, we should not be here. We haven't 
earned it. We didn't earn it, and we haven't earned it since. We're all here because Jesus earned it on our behalf. There should be great humility and openness um, to, to listen and talk and embrace and to, to proclaim. Old Testament, when God entered into a similar covenant with Abraham, with the Jews, it was the same. They weren't pure and righteous. They hadn't earned God's favor. They were tokoy in spirit. And he ushered them into that state of ashray, enviableness, by his own choice, by his own power. It was unilateral. This is what God's pursuing heart is all about. This is what Jesus spoke about in Luke 4. He's going after the broken, the lost, the helpless, and dragging them, rescuing them from being unenviable and putting them into a place where they're enviable. So here's the contrast. In Jerusalem, the doors were flung open only for faithful Jews, right? A day and a half walk south. The so-called righteous Jews, the ones who, at least from a human perspective, look like they're depending upon God, they're loving their neighbor, it looks like they're all those all the things that Torah required, right? It's in Jerusalem, the doors are flung open for the clean, the pure, the righteous. But here in Galilee, this is so great. Listen, the doors are flung open for the unrighteous, all types and brands of humanity whom God has given ears to hear, the tokoy and spirit. No wonder our churches are so messy. They should be. Uh, this, these are the people that we're dragging in, people who, man, they're just uh, relationally and, and uh, spiritually, they're, they're, they're coming from from total unenviableness, and all of a sudden they're enviable, you can understand why there's so many issues and so many mistakes and so many faux pas. But, but what I'm presenting here is two movements, right? Jerusalem versus Galilee, two hills, two kings, two priests, two temples. In, in Jerusalem, the temple of God in Galilee, Jesus. And, and as soon as the Spirit goes out, we become temples of the Spirit. So, Two movements, they are contrasting, they compete, and one of those movements is going to change the world. I'll let you decide. So I believe, based upon Matthew 8, 1, that on that special day, the Spirit went out along with Jesus' words, and a revival started, kicked in, initiated, where many on that hillside, very surprising, were grabbed, they were given new hearts, they came to believe something, maybe a little or a lot, they didn't know much, Right? They just didn't. There were lots of questions after the Sermon on the Mount, but they were put on a path that led to true salvation. Or maybe they were in salvation and they were able to understand it more as they followed along with Jesus. But it certainly wasn't what they came for. I don't think they were looking to come to be saved or to become Jewish in, in this particular case. They didn't leave righteous or theologically more pure or circumcised, right, or baptized. They left experiencing a little of the enviable state that God had intended men and women and boys and girls to experience. Think Adam and Eve pre-fall. And none of them, like me, ever deserved it or saw it coming or pursued it, like me, and all had a hard time, I'm guessing, putting all of the puzzle pieces together. They were shocked, Matthew says, and they danced a little, maybe a lot. This was ridiculous good news. Not only was the Sermon of the, on the Mount remarkable due to the teaching, you know, brilliant, but it was powerful and changed those outsiders into insiders and specifically people who really wanted to be in the presence of Jesus, who, who wanted to, to see his face, to see his smile, to, to hear him explain some of this crazy stuff, meaning they were Jesus followers, right? That's what a disciple is. And you've likely felt it before, and maybe not for a long time, but you're feeling it now, right? 
unenviable men and women, Jesus is saying, hear me. Now, you are now most fortunate ones because you're with me, right? Makarios, here today. So look into my eyes, drink it in. You can. Real Makarios is in me and is only accessed through me and my spirit. But you hear that now, don't you? You likely were told or came to believe that you would never be given the gift of such Makarios from God, not you, that it was exclusive to the righteous perfect in Jerusalem. I have never met one of those, by the way. But here you are in, in the honored presence of God, in my presence, not because you're good or worthy or pure or trust in God or have dependent upon God or you're open to this gift or aware of your neediness, really, or you've pursued wisdom and you're certainly not free from sin. And yet here you are and you're invited here, A-listed, because I say so, because of me. And I, you can't lose that. Though I have healed some of you and your, of your immediate ailments, Look around. You are still the gathering of the sick and infirm, the shame and shaming, the oppressed, helpless, the failures, the serial sinners, uh, those who are dying, tokoi and spirit, all. The difference is that you are now surprisingly drawn near to the God who cares, who knows you, who has a deep compassion, uh, splagnizomai, that's the, the Greek word for the compassion of God, where he, he's moved to rescue. This makes you enviable. You're here, lipne Elohim, a Hebrew idiom for being in front of his face. You're in front of the face of God because I'm here and you're looking at my face. You're more honored than you have ever felt, more than so many others before you. But you have a story you can tell your kids, feel my spirit, come near, open your clenched fist at last and receive me. Blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven or Enviable are the unenviable because God is theirs. Or enviable are the traumatized because God is there now. You are God's and he is yours. Isn't that crazy? Enviable are the unenviable because God is theirs and implied and they are God's. All right, so it's time to present my screenplay. It's been a while for this first section of the Beatitudes. I'm hoping that you enjoy it. So I want to have that screenplay uh, fleshed out for the entire Sermon on the Mount. And like I said, I'm, I'm hopefully doing a, a book on, uh, a fictional book on Matthew reconsidering or, or re-explaining or, or digging deeper into the Beatitudes 10 years after he wrote his gospel and having some fun with that. More on that later. But here we go. The Beatitudes. <clears throat> Jesus was so busy in those early days. He and his disciples walked throughout the region of Galilee from the Mediterranean coastal villages and ports to the towns and burbs in the hill country along the Megiddo Valley and, of course, the cities along the lake. He taught whenever he could in the Jewish synagogues, but he didn't stop there. He shared the good news with anyone, Jew or not, and he did so much more than proclaim that the kingdom of God is here. He healed people. Crowds merged upon him because they heard in their villages and countries that he was a great healer. And it was true. He healed people afflicted with every kind of disease and sickness. Jesus merely touched them and they were healed, clean, pure. He healed those who had long suffered from debilitating chronic pain, those with seizures and those paralyzed. No healer or religious doctor could do any of this. Jesus was unique. Oh, I don't want to forget, he also commanded, and the demonic spirits fled from the poor people who were being consumed. The disciples were speechless. 
and the crowds kept swelling. And I should also say that Jesus didn't take any money. There were no strings, no shaming, no judgment. He just healed them, all of them, as they were. And so you can imagine, with that news going out, people came from everywhere, from beyond Galilee, all over Syria, from Phoenicia to the port cities of Tyre and Sidon on the Mediterranean Sea to Damascus, even as far away as the Euphrates River. People came from Judea, from Perea, and from the Decapolis. To be clear, from the north, south, east, and west. And Jesus did not disappoint. There came a day Jesus was healing and teaching on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, just east of Capernaum. If you've seen the shore, you know that it can't handle such a vast crowd, so Jesus moved up the hillside and sat down. He appeared to be ready to address the entire crowd. I want to say something about the crowd. It should go without saying that these were not a Jewish crowd alone. And to be clear, within the crowd, there were many very different Jewish groupings. There were a few from Judea, and you could tell because they were dressed as Jews and for the most part huddled together. They knew Greek, but would prefer to speak in Aramaic. Then there were the Galilean Jews from the central hill country around Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. They had a reputation of being separatist from Rome, insurrectionist, to a person all had lost someone, a father, a brother, a friend, in the great uprising a few decades earlier. One person has described them as being passive-aggressive, and I would add, sad. The Judean Jews did not think well of them at all. They were societally mixed breeds, or so it was argued. The Galilean Jews pushed back, calling the Judean Jews cowards and slaves. Well, you get the idea. Then there were the Galilean Jews who lived to service the great Roman artery, the Via Maris. They were Jews, sure, but they worked really hard to look like Romans, to talk Greek and not be offensive, because their livelihood depended upon fitting in and getting along. Well, neither of the former two groups were comfortable with them either. But all of these Jewish ghettos were surrounded by and immersed in people from just about every people group in the world, at least from our perspective. I mean, to be sure, they did not come to be converted to Judaism. They came to see the Jewish boy wonder and to hopefully get some immediate pain relief from their stuckness. There was something that the people had in common. They were the tokoi in spirit. The root of the word tosos is to cower, to cringe. You get the idea, right? They were the abject poor, the abysmally impoverished. Those completely depended upon others to make it. In an honor-shame culture, you are shamed if you get stuck with illnesses and rashes and madness and mental disorders. No one wants you around. You become an unspeakable. One observer noted that it was a host of the miserable, the guilt-burdened, the lonely, the incurably ill, the careworn, the poor people who are hagridden by anxieties of all kind. No rabbi would be associated with this tragic rabble, until Jesus, that is. These were the people that Jesus had come for, and they were drawn to him like a magnet. These are those who would become the foundation of his movement that would change the world. Jesus was a phenom, and all the world wanted a piece of him, but particularly those who were at the very ends of their rope. Jesus moved through the burgeoning crowd of unclean desperates and climbed about midway up the gentle rolling slope littered with huge black basalt boulders. When he thought that he had found just the right spot, he sat down 
on a very large basalt rock. Some Jewish scholars pointed out that this is exactly what Moses did when he presented the Jews with the two tablets from God. Interesting, am I right? And Jesus signaled to the crowd that he was ready to address them. It took a little while for the murmuring to wind down into silence. And when he had their attention, he waved his hands over them and proclaimed something that was wild and provocative, arresting, in fact, unbelievable, so much so that he had to repeat it a number of times. No one saw this coming, no one. The crowds, circumcised and uncircumcised, were perplexed and troubled, but I will confess, there were more than a few that just started to dance. I say to you, Jesus began, the unenviable are now enviable, because you are God's. So to unpack it, here's what he said. Here is the stunning good news that I came to say to you, all of you, in my presence, because of my presence, because I am here in your midst, and my spirit is pouring out over you and among you and within you. You who were the most unenviable are now the ones that everyone will envy. Those who had lost all hope of having the favor of the divine, those who had dug life holes so deep, those who had been inextricably stuck in addictions and diseases and webs of sin, those who had been treated so badly here, unjustly, unfairly, those who people, even some families, had cast away and who had hid in the ugly shadows for so long. Great news. Come to me. Follow me. Receive me. And something new will come. No, something has come. You will be those of whom others will say, look, they are clearly blessed by God himself in this place with me because of me. You will find joy again, hope. Your shame will begin to lose its power over you. You will feel human again, you again, and will once again think about your potential. You will feel more enoughness and connectedness because, because you have become covenant children of God. Of you, God says, you are my people and I am your God. I say it is so. Welcome, son and daughter. The unenviable are now enviable because God is theirs. Okay, well, I hope that's shocking. I hope that's encouraging. I hope that's arresting. I hope that Remind you the good news of the gospel. I hope it stirs something up inside of you, a remembrance of when you felt that for the first time. But there's more to come. We'll begin to look at the other eight Beatitudes next time. Give me some feedback. I mean, this is different than you've heard before. It's tough to to teach something different, particularly related to a familiar passage like the Beatitudes. So give me some feedback. And remember, like, follow, share this podcast with others. Make comments. You can send it directly to me if you want. If your podcast uh, company doesn't allow for that, bill at gospel-app.com. And pass this on. Get it to your small groups. Get it to your church. Get it to, to your family. Be a missionary that can do that and so change the lives of people you love. I think it's it's striking to tell people who, who have been leaving the church, flooding from the church because they feel shame. They feel um, that God is disappointed in them, or maybe even leaving churches may, making God disappointed in them, and to give them good news. Okay? Check out my Instagram, Gospel App, G-O-S-P-E-L-A-P-P, one word. See you in the next Gospel Rant Podcast. Take heart, child of God.
Have you ever felt conflict between your faith and feelings? If so, you're not alone. My name is Carly Mercouillier. I'm a licensed therapist and the host of the Therapy and Theology podcast, where we explore popular topics and questions related to faith, feelings, and spiritual formation. I want to invite you to join me every Thursday as we fearlessly name the complexities of our reality, grow in the awareness of who we are, and rediscover the power and purpose of our unique stories through the lens of the gospel. Subscribe today at lifeaudio.com.